You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. Welcome back to Mining Stock Education. I'm your host, Bill Powers, chatting today with Dave Kranzler from Investment Research Dynamics. It's been quite a while since Dave was on the show. Dave is also the editor of the Mining Stock Journal, and he's covered mining stocks in that journal for at least eight years, right, Dave? Uh, let's see. Yeah, I started it in early 2016, so seven and a half years, whatever. And then you started buying silver at that point, too, when you were, uh, you were a trader at that point, right? No, at that point, I had actually left Wall Street, moved out to Denver, where I'm from. Um, but yeah, I bought my first, I actually bought gold first. I paid 300 bucks an ounce for Austrian Philharmonics. And you still own them? Same ones? I do. Yep, yep. So you own it, you have to have it in your possession, and you hold on to it. And I think you were buying silver at $5, if I remember from a previous conversation. I think my first silver was 5 I, I think the bulk of it, bulk of it's under 10 for sure. Mm. All right, so the banks are collapsing, but it seems to be it's just the regional banks at this point. You know, is this a controlled demolition to filter us into the top six banks? What do you see happening here, and how does this affect us as junior gold speculators? I, you know, I, a lot of people might think what you just suggested is conspiracy theory and, um, I've, I've put some thought into it. I don't know if that's what is really going on behind the scenes. Certainly what's going on isn't what we're seeing on in mainstream media and on TV. Right. I mean, Jake Powell assured us last Wednesday that the banking system was safe and resilient and right after the stock market closed and after he was done with his FOMC press conference one of the re- I think it was Pac West or something announced that they were evaluating options for raising capital or, or an outright sale. We had another down leg. So that that doesn't that doesn't reflect a safe and resilient banking system. Again, I mean I don't I don't want to go into the the conspiracy theory tall weeds, but there I, I would not rule that possibility out that this is a way for them to um, consolidate banking assets and deposits into the large money center banks in New York and that are members of the New York Fed. I mean, we all know the New York Fed is by far the most powerful of the regional banks. I don't know if you ever read The, the Creature from Jekyll Island. I have read it. I know parts of it, but I have not read the book in yeah, its totality. I mean, it's, it, it, for people who think that this might actually be a stupid conspiracy theory, they, they need to read that because G. Edward Griffin has done remarkable research in putting together that book about the founding of the Federal Reserve. And one of the reasons why it was erected was that the regional banks were taking a lot of market share away from the New York money center banks. And so it was a way for the New York money center banks to sort of not monopolize, but maybe create a banking oligarchy and 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 put some of those regional banks that were taking their, their business away out of business. So whether that's what's really happening or not, it's happening. And I don't think we've seen the last of it. So the Fed dumped $400 billion into the banking system, not not with direct QE, but with, with support facilities and things like that. And that's starting to come back out. And you know that that's what I think gave the illusion of stabilization. And that's also what I think um, has driven this latest leg in the, in the bear market rally that's been going on in the stock market. Dave, I have some friends that I talk to frequently that they're planning for a late summer, early fall potential severe crisis. That's how they're positioning their financing finances. And when I was chatting with one of them, I said, listen, brother, 
We've been talking about this since 2009, right? We've been expecting financial Armageddon since 2009. I said, what the, what makes this the time that you really think it's all going to come down? And and they said, hey, he, he linked to intuition. He said, all the signs are there. And I said, yeah, but a lot of the signs have been there for the last 10 plus years that we've been talking about it, right? I guess what I'm saying, Dave, is I could see it collapsing, but at the same time, I can't believe they've held it on this long. So for someone like me, what would you say? I mean, I don't like to put a timing on it. Like, I'm not going to say the end of the summer or fall. I mean, that's usually when bad things seem to happen to the financial markets, right? In, in terms of their ability to hold it up, part of their ability to do that is because the dollar has been the reserve currency and everyone around the world has to take it. So there's always demand for it. So a lot of that money, I mean, they printed almost $9 trillion between 2008 and early 2022. So they printed almost $9 trillion. There's other mechanisms that have provided liquidity in the global markets and the U.S. markets besides just the QE. And then you got up, the U.S. government's been able to keep growing its debt load, again, because of the rest of the world that has had been considered the safest place to park your money, right? Treasuries. But now we're seeing big parts of the rest of the world divesting treasuries you know, I'm sure this debt ceiling crisis will be resolved by either suspending it or lifting it. But at some point, the world's going to stop accepting dollars. And we're starting to see that movement now. And, and that's that's at the point where money printing won't hold things up the way they've been holding it up. And whether that whether that happens sometime in the next four or five months, I, I have no idea. I mean, I, I honestly am expecting another big down leg in the stock market sometime in the next two or three months. But I don't know if that's going to be the big one. It's going to be one of those things where we're not going to be able to see it coming. We're going to be blindsided by it. And all of a sudden, it's it's going to be a gradually, then suddenly situation, right? Where we know it's coming, we just don't know when. And when we least expect it, boom, that's when it'll hit. So if it's a gradually, then all, it's, all at once uh, expectation, which I agree with, how does that affect gold stocks? You know, with some people I know, they're minimizing some of their exposure to the more speculative side of the gold stocks in order to build up cash for what they think is a crash. How are you navigating what you see in the macroeconomic level as it relates to your junior gold portfolio? Sure. Well, I mean, first and foremost, I would recommend keeping the money that you have allocated to the precious metal sector. People would probably be shocked if they knew what my percentage is. Let's just say it's greater than, way greater than 50%. But the majority of that should be in physical metal that you safe keep, safe keep yourself. I mean, it's okay to use custodians for some of it, but the problem is, is that when the big one finally hits, I think you're going to see custodians for all types of assets just shut down or implode. If I'm right, that would suggest that owning any stocks, let alone mining stocks, is not going to be a good place to be. Again, you know, when you keep your your assets or your money with a custodian, you're one step removed from it, and you're exposed to the risk, the custodial risk, the risk that custodian goes out of business, you know, and, and if it's a bank and you're in an insured account, yeah, you're going to get your money back, but it takes a while. It doesn't happen all at once. I think the market is probably going to sniff out what's coming before we see it, you know, the general market. So we'll see precious metals rise, which we saw over the last few weeks during, you know, when, when all the dust was being kicked up with the regional banks and the mining stocks followed. And I think what we'll see, I think we're going to continue to see gold and silver rally, and that's going to push mining stocks higher at some point. You know, the juniors have lagged, and at some point, and, you know, for me, that's that's the classic bull cycle. 
where you get gold and silver moving first, the the largest cap gold miners moving, and we saw that. If you look at the Amex Gold Bugs Index or the Huey, uh, that's that was outperforming the rest of the sector for a while. Um, I think GDX has actually been, and that's smaller, you know, slightly smaller cap than the Amex Gold Bugs in- Index. A lot of the juniors have just gone sideways, but if you look at the charts. You know they're they're forming nice bases, and some of them are moving up. You know it's they haven't all been dead. Some of them have had some nice returns on them over the last six months. So I think what we'll see, you know, before the big one hits, is is the precious metal sector will go crazy, and the mining stocks will go crazy times two or three. That's usually how it works out. And it, the trick is, if you really think that you're exposed to custodial risk with your stock accounts, you got to figure out when you're going to sell them and get your money out. You know before they they blow up. Are you of that camp or in terms of like you have to have the physical stock stock certificates or timing it to get it out before you think a broker might go down? No, I'm just, I would just take your cash out and buy more gold and silver. I used to be in that camp and part of it, part of the motivation for it was, and Jim Sinclair was the one who really drove the thinking on that for, for our people in our, our sector. And part of that was just to get yours, you know, get your certificates and hold on to them so that they, they can't be borrowed and shorted. And part of it was, yeah, you know, it removes custodial risk. But if if we really have the type of crisis or collapse that collapses the custodians, I, I don't know why people think they're mining their, their stock certificates, whether it's mining stocks or whatever, some, you know, tech stock certificates. I don't know why people think that that's going to give them value. I mean, a lot of these businesses will be out of business. They won't be able to operate. And it'll take a long time before things, the dust settles, if it settles, and and normal business activities resume. So I think you're just better off, you know, if, if you're starting to feel uncomfortable with the markets and you're worried about what might happen, I think you're better off just moving every, everything into cash and getting it as much as you can out of, out of custodial safekeeping. The last uh, couple of years have been difficult for us uh, junior precious metal speculators and the miners. Has that change your outlook or you're giving you new criteria for what you look for in a junior these days really it's been difficult for you (laughs) just a little bit (laughs) it's it's, it's been tough it's been tough we've had a couple couple periods of really nice returns since 2016 started right we had we had nice returns for for the first eight months of 2016 and then so off and then a really nice pop in 2020 of course that was helped fueled by that we're truly in the Fed dumped into the into the system, and then we've been kind of we have been in a downtrend since really since August 2020. You know, there's been some fits and starts, and I think we probably bottomed out in September October of 2022. So, um, and I think the the current pullback that we're in is a healthy pullback that'll set up the next move higher. Um, I mean, in terms of the criterion that I use when I look at, and this is primarily for the junior microcap exploration or junior development companies, right? So you're, you know, market caps well under a hundred million, um, and they've got a project that they're looking to advance and the stocks often sell for 10 cents, 20 cents. And if you pick out the right ones, you've got potential for a five X or 10 X on your, or in some cases even more. Um, like Silvercrest Metals. But um, I don't know that it's necessarily changed the criterion that I use when I'm evaluating companies like that. I, I will say that 
over the last couple of years, I've become a lot more sensitive to jurisdictional risk. So probably the number one criterion is if I'm looking at a project, a company with a project, is a low-risk jurisdiction. And that's, again, that's a relative term. I mean, even the United States, which people consider to be low, relatively low risk, I mean, if you talk to, to junior executives, they're like, no, it's, it's, there's a lot of risk involved with developing a project in the United States, you know, not the least of which is dealing with the BLM and dealing with and trying to get an environmental permit. So, um, and even, you know, Canada is probably the most jurisdictional friendly for precious metals miners. The second thing I look at is, is if, you know, if I decide, okay, I'm going to take a look at this, you know, what's the, the DNA of the, of the project area, right? Are there, are there other projects that are being successfully advanced? Are there mines that are operating in there? Because then that, you know, I'm not a trained geologist and most people who invest in these things aren't, but if, if there's other companies that are taking deposits from that area and extracting it, then it suggests that, you know, assuming the geology is similar for the project you're looking at, it suggests that, you know, you probably have amenable metallurgy, right? Of the geology, which means you can actually economically extract the mineralization. I really don't like to go invest in evergreen projects, meaning projects that are greenfield where there hasn't been any exploration. You know, you get a company, oh, we just leased claims or we acquired claims in this project in this area and we're going to start start exploring it and drilling it. And, you know, I like to see, I like the company to be, or the project to be slightly advanced, whether it's field work and ideally, you know, preliminary drilling, because that's, you know, you can have a project in the middle of the largest gold mines in the world. And there's a reason why that property is available because there's, you know, there's nothing there and you don't know if there's anything there until you start drilling. So um, I like to have some evidence. Um, this is really important for me. I, and it's not, it's not a deal breaker, but I like to see high insider ownership, you know, at least 10%, because if I'm going to put my money into something, I want to see that management is also doing the same thing, you know, because it also reflects the degree to which they believe in the project. Another one that's, again, it's not a deal breaker, but I do like to see a low share count because as you know, when you're advancing an early stage project, it takes a lot of capital to do it. And, you know, people whine about, um, stock deals to raise money, but how else are they supposed to raise money? You know, they're not going to walk into JP Morgan and get them loan to, to start drilling a project. Right. <laughs> so, um, I do like to see a low share count. If, if, if you come into a company that has what looks like a good project and they've got a high share count. And, you know, they've been around for eight or nine years. It probably means they've made a lot of mistakes. So, um, and that's another thing I do is when I'm looking at a company for, for the first time, one of the first things I do is I go through their newsfeed from the very beginning. Cause I want to see where it came from, who's involved, um, whether they've done reverse splits, reverse splits often cover up gaping wounds in the, in the company. So, um, and then again, ideally, it's not a, again, it's not a deal breaker, but ideally I like to see the company have 12 months of cash based on their current burn rate. Cause that way you kind of, at least, you know, that they'll have enough cash to go through a drill program. And if they hit a discovery, the next round of financing will be at a, at a higher stock price. I don't like to be invested in companies that keep issuing stock and they keep dragging me along. Oh, look at these drill results, you know, and and it seems like it takes forever. And all of a sudden their, their share count goes from 50 million to 250 million and the stock's gone nowhere or down, you know? So I, I try to avoid those situations. 
And what would be some companies that meet this criteria? Would you be willing to share some picks that you have? Sure. And, and just for the record, my, my newest idea is I, I embargo for my subscribers. And again, another criterion that I like to use, and it's getting harder as, as the audience of, of mining stock and precious metal sector investors expands. I mean, there's so many more investors, retail investors, institutional now than there was in the early 2000s. So it's getting harder to find and uncover ideas that already don't have a lot of eyeballs looking at it. Um, but one I, I've mentioned in the past is Viva Gold. I don't know if you remember that one or... Yep, Nevada, yeah. Yep. So they're um, they're developing a an open pit, heap leachable project in Tonopah. It's it's a I mean it's it's a smallish deposit. I mean right now I think they have six hundred and fifty thousand ounces of measured, indicated, and inferred. But it's it's relatively high grade. And I know the CEO really well, and he's he's done several of these projects. He's done every phase of mining, you know, from greenfield project development to converting it into a mine. And, um, there's, there's a lot of times a separation between the geologists who are always optimistic and developing a, a project and they don't necessarily think about the logistics of, okay, well, you know, what do we have? Where are we going to source power? Where are we going to source water? You know, once we, once we've, uh, extracted our gold or silver, you know, how are we going to transport it to refineries? He's, I've learned a lot from him and he's, he's been involved with all aspects of that. And quite frankly, this this is probably one of the most straightforward projects to get from where it is now to get it converted into a mine. And it's probably going to happen within the next 18 to 24 months, barring some, you know, there's still risks here, but there's not a lot of risks. So barring, you know, a meteor hit, falling and hitting the project, said, hey, this is as sure a thing as anything I look at in terms of getting getting it from where it is now into an operating mine. Um, it's, it's a very low cost and easy to build mine. Like I said, it's heat bleach, heat bleach open pit. And honestly, I, I think there's a chance because in the, in the Walker Lane trend, there's been a lot of M and A activity recently. And, um, there's been some comparable projects that have been acquired by Anglo Gold Asante and Santerra. Um, and if you look at what they paid for those projects, they weren't, they weren't mines. They're were basically projects in similar phase as, as Viva's Tonopah project. Um, it would value Viva at somewhere between 100 and 150 million. And that's based on how far along it's advanced, how much it's de-risked and how much gold it has in the ground. And what's the current so, market cap? Viva's market cap right now is, uh, it's about 12 or 13 million. You're potentially... Now, you're not going to get full value in this, right? Because if someone's going to come along and acquire it, they're not going to pay full value for it. But I think you're probably looking at a somewhere between a five and 10 bagger, relatively riskless compared to, you know, comparable projects. So, um, and then the other thing is that's really interesting is um, Kinross has its round mountain mine, not too far north of where the Wistonopop project is. 25 million ounces, right? Yep, and they're going to start developing the underground portion of it because they they're starting to tap out of the open pit ore, and they've got a huge processing facility. And I think there's a good chance that before Viva sinks money into building a mine, I think there's a chance Kenross takes it over because you can you can truck the ore from Tonopod to Round Mountain and process it. So um, it would make sense for Kenross to do that so that it can, you know, as you know, these processing facilities are most efficient if they're running at full full bore, right? 
and and Ken Ross is going to need feedstock for it. And in my opinion, you know, Viva's project is is the perfect perfect source of war for that. Is it similar metallurgy to Round Mountain? Well, it's yeah. I mean, they've got an open pit processing, so um, and that's what that's what Viva's deposit is. It would be open pit, heat bleachable. Any more picks, Dave? Or if- oh, um, yeah. So another one, and I don't know if I've mentioned this in the past. It's been a while since since we've done a podcast. There's a company called Angus Gold, and the ticker is AMGVF on the OTC Bolton board and GUS on the Toronto Venture. And it's relatively unknown, um, relatively underfollowed. They're advancing a high-grade gold project in an area called the Wawa Camp. It's part of the Greenstone Belt in Canada. And it's surrounded by mines that are operated by Westone and Alamos. And then it's, it's, I think, um, Argonauts Mangino Mine is a little bit northeast of where this is. So, you know, Right away, there's potential acquirers of this project, and they've had some phenomenal drill results. They just raised some capital. They're fully funded for their drilling for this year. There's two potential deposits on the property, and um, management owns 37%. New Gold owns 10%. That's actually where I originally found it. I was reading through one of New Gold's, the transcripts from one of their earnings calls about a year and a half or two years ago. And they'd mentioned that they had just invested in in um, Angus Gold. So um, the, it's got a tight share structure, 50 million shares after the latest financing, no warrants. The management is absolutely adamant against issuing warrants because they don't want their returns diluted. And they've been able to do financings without, without requiring warrants. And part of that is because the management participates in every financing that they've done. I can't remember what the market cap is off the top of my head. I think it's about thirty-five million. And this one again, I, I think it could easily be a five or ten bagger, with geological success, of course, with the drill bit. I mean, honestly, I don't like to put the cart before the horse, but one of their deposits already has a historical resource that they need to. And they're, you know, I think I can't remember. I think it's like three hundred thousand ounces or something like that. I, don't hold me to that number. That's off the top of my head. Um, and the drill results are indicating that it's going to be much bigger and higher grade. And then there's a, another um, geological formation called a banded iron formation on their property, and they just started drilling that. If they have both deposits, if they can prove a deposit on the BIF and on the area where there's the existing historical resource, I mean, this thing's a grand slam home run. Dave, when you look at in situ gold ounces in the ground, um, somebody brought a company to me and they said, Bill, look at this as an optionality play. And I said, it's too small for me to look at as an optionality play. It was like a half a million ounces. You know, you got something going on geologically, I'll give you that, but I would be more interested in the potential exploration upside if all you have is a half a million ounces. When I think optionality, usually I think at least two to three million ounces a company has to have, preferably in the measured and indicated categories before I would consider that a play on the gold price. Uh, do you view view that similarly or or differently? I that's a good point, and I'm assuming this was an inferred resource. Um, no, there was some measured and indicated in it too. Oh, okay. So it was it was proven up a little more. And then did they have a big property package? It was decent, but they weren't even marketing it as such. They were marketing at uh, low GNA, proven ounces in the ground. Here's why the gold price will go up. An optionality play, and I was like, oh, it's just too small. 
Well, I, you're, you're right. You, you can look at optionality as in, in a couple different ways. You know, okay, we've got 500,000 ounces and we think we can grow this into two or three million. But there's also the gold price optionality. I mean, it, you know, at a certain gold price, a half million ounce mine is extremely valuable. So for instance, Viva, they've got, again, I think it's around 675 measured, indicated, inferred. But when you look at the drilling that they're doing and you look at their land package and you look at the trend that it's on, if they're around long enough before they get acquired to further expand and develop the resource, I mean, I think you're looking at at least a million ounces here and it's, it's high grade gold and really low cost to process. So, you know, again, to me, that's, that's massive optionality. And you've had, you've had three different M&A transactions in that region, in that area, in the Walker Lane trend that have confirmed my suspicion that Viva's worth at least 100 to 150 million. All right, before you go, one more pick, or or is that good for today? Um, yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, there's one that uh, started covering, I believe, October. The CEO had reached out to me on Twitter in a, D, in a DM, and normally that kind of puts me off. But I took a look at, you know, I took a look at their website and their presentation, and I, I got all of them. And um, he's a great guy, Simon Dyakowski, I guess you pronounce his name. It's it's Aztec Minerals, Cervantes Project in Mexico. And I mean, I'm not even going to go into that one because at some point Alamos is going to acquire that that property. I'm sure Alamos is is I think they have eight or nine percent of the equity and and they maintain their position you know in the financings. And it would just make sense for Alamos to acquire it. And then they've got Tombstone in Arizona, and they just acquired a key land parcel you know cheaply too that they needed so that they can complete their not necessarily complete it but build out their land pack. There was a missing wall apparently in where they think the geology runs and now they've got it. And it looks like it is Taylor deposit style geology on the, on the property. And I'm not saying it's going to be as big or as robust as the Taylor, you know, you know, the Taylor. Yeah. And you might want to tell listeners what that was bought out for just to put it in perspective. Yeah, I can't even remember. Was it 1.2 billion? Yeah, it was like a billion dollars. I just had yeah, a billion dollars I, in my I head. I've been involved in Wildcat Silver, which was the predecessor to Arizona Minerals, and then South 32 bought them out. I mean, it's 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 a it's a world famous, world class polymetallic deposit. You know, lead, zinc, silver, gold. It looks like the mineralization and the geology on Tombstone is similar. And again, that's not to say they're even necessarily going to find a deposit. I think they will. But basically, the reason I like Aztec is you've got two horses here, and if just one comes in, you're looking at a home run, and if they both come in, Grand Slam. So is that is that the optionality you look for in an exploration play too? More than one project? It kind of depends. Again, you know, I, I hate these companies that have five projects and they put a little bit of money into each. But this this one, the, both these projects, and uh, Aztec just did a financing and they didn't have any problems raising the money. These, these are both two highly prospective projects and the drill results on both have been phenomenal. And so I, I'm okay if they're developing both at once. Dave, your uh, journal, the mining stock journal, could you remind listeners what you offer there and how often you issue it? Sure. Um, I mean, you can get more detailed information at investmentresearchdynamics.com, but, um, it's, it's, it's bi bi-weekly. So it's twice, twice a month on Thursdays after the market closes. So I don't, I don't like some subscribers to have an early advantage who, you know, the ones who are working and they, you know, if I set it out in the morning, they have a shot at, oh, I'm going to invest in these before the rest of the subscribers, you know, pile into it. Um, 
and I I cover a portfolio of ideas. Most of them I invest in, either myself or my small fund that I that I manage with a partner. And so I, I do put my money where my mouth is on most of them. I disclose whether or not I'm invested in it and whether I'm adding to it. And you know, and I I admit my mistakes. I've probably over the last three or four years. I've probably had about four companies that I've discontinued coverage on. And again, it's, you know, I let my subscribers know. It's like, hey, I'm putting this one on care and maintenance and I'm going to sell the stock. So just so you know. And that's part of the game. It's it's nothing abnormal, is it? It's just part of the game. It's just, exactly. Um, And I I do focus on the high-risk, high-return junior development stocks. But I also, if I see a relative value idea in a mid-cap or a large cap, I'll write about it. Um, one that I recently wrote about was Hecla. And I've just happened to notice over the last year that that when the market's rallying, Hecla outperforms. And it, you know, that's especially true since they acquired that Alaska project or the Alaska company. That's the name of it. Uh, Alexco. Yeah, Alexco. That was um, a disaster and- for Alexco shareholders, but it can work out for Hecla, right? And I was a fan of Alexco because the 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 deposit is so high grade and there's so much room for upside. And I think what it's got a 400 ton per day processing facility. I think once they get that thing ramped up and operating efficiently, you know, they'll expand that. I mean, if they double the size of that, the acquisition for them is, is a grand slam home run. Um, but it, it certainly adds a lot of high grade silver and it's it's basically pure silver. So so you you've got massive price optionality to to silver and especially with the grade of the deposit. So, um, you know, that's just an example of a, of a larger cap stock that I write about and discuss and talk about my call option strategies. Excellent. Well, Dave, thanks for coming on the show. It's been a while. It was great catching up with you. Likewise, Bill. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Mining Stock Education. Please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors. Connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch. Much success to you as you learn about, invest in, and profit from mining stocks. The mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth. You know, a good drill hole that converts it might cost fifty or $100,000, and it might discover something worth a couple billion. There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances uh, where there was the possibility, certainly not the certainty, but the possibility of 10-for-1 returns as there is in small-cap and micro-cap mining stocks. Concomitant with that, if you don't do the work, or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side, there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks too. I just started to study up on mining stocks and I just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector and it's so volatile that either you could really, you could do really, really well, or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly. The mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very, very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks. Don't be overly confident. And just do your work as best you can. Do your very best. But don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because um, that's a recipe for disaster. I have met you know, professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited, and they just they spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, being pouring through financial documents. But it requires commitment.
This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on miningstockeducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.